Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Affirmative action, discrimination versus free speech, the power of states in election laws, Miranda rights. Those are all on our docket today. They uh, affect our lives, of course, and uh, our high courts are deciding, uh, sort of fine-tuning uh, all kinds of issues. And today we're going to look at what is currently before the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of significant cases, also important cases before the Iowa Supreme Court. Joining us to do that, two legal scholars. Todd Pettis is the H. Blair and Joan V. White Chair in Civil Litigation, professor of uh, in the University of Iowa College of Law. Todd, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Todd's colleague with us as well, Emily Hughes, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Edward F. Howry Professor in the University of Iowa College of Law. Thanks for joining me in the studio, Emily. Thrilled to be with you. This is such a... I always look forward to this hour because, uh, Todd, you and Emily are so good at... Um, helping us understand which is what what can be, of course, the field of law can be a thicket of sort of nuance and uh, weeds, <laughs> to, to put it in plain speak, but you make it so accessible for us, and we want to invite our listeners to join us as we walk through or have uh, Emily and Todd walk us through a number of the most high-profile cases. If you have any questions, join us, one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Um, Todd, we're going to start off with you on a number of U.S. Supreme Court cases, and Emily, weigh in as you like here. But uh, And then, um, Emily, we're going to have you um, really hone in on some important Iowa Supreme Court cases. But let's start off with uh, a case that's been in the news recently. In fact, we have uh, sort of breaking news to do with this case today. Uh, the bill to protect same-sex marriage rights has cleared Congress. Um, the House gave final approval to the measure today within the last few hours, with lawmakers from both parties voting in favor. Now it heads to the president, uh, President Biden, to be signed in law. Well, with that in mind, Todd, uh, t- take us through the basics. Tell us what uh, how this uh, case that uh, we've been hearing about in the news, gay rights and free speech, a case of a Christian website designer in Colorado. Um, Help us understand what's going on there. And it was argued before the the high court this week, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, as you say, that statute that uh, has passed through Congress today sure reflects a a very significant cultural change. Uh, Hard to have imagined several years ago that a statute protecting same-sex marriage would pass Congress, but here it has happened. But of course, there still remains some pretty broad opposition to same-sex marriage in different quarters, and this case uh, involves that. It's a case called 303 Creative, which is a business name. Uh, It's a business run by a woman in Colorado named Lori Smith. And uh, a lot of your listeners will remember just a few years ago, a case involving a custom cake designer, a guy named Jack Phillips, who in Colorado as well, who would make custom wedding cakes for people. And he refused to make custom wedding cakes for same-sex couples. And in that case, it's a case called Masterpiece Cake Shop. And I mention it just because I know some of your listeners are going to remember it. Mm-hmm. In that case, a few years ago, that was a free exercise of religion case. And he said it violated his religious principles to have to make that 
those cakes. And the Supreme Court in that case ruled in his favor on free exercise of religion grounds, finding that Colorado officials had really manifested great hostility to his religion when uh, working with him on his claim. Uh, this case that's in front of the court now, Lori Smith's case, uh, is a free speech case, but otherwise kind of similar in its fact pattern. She's a website developer, as you say, and one of the things that she wants to do, one facet of her business would be building websites for weddings, you know, where guests can find out details and maybe get links to your gift registries and so forth. And she doesn't want to make those for same-sex couples. And what she says is that it is forcing her to speak in ways that she doesn't want to speak. Now, there is an important First Amendment free speech principle that the government cannot force you to speak. It can't force you to say things that you don't want to say. And she says that's what's happening here. And so one of the issues in the uh, case is when someone, build, if she does make, build a website for someone, is that in fact speech? Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that the uh, Supreme Court was contemplating during the oral arguments uh, this week. The, the uh, Colorado statute that tees all this up is a, is a public accommodation statute. It's a statute like we have in Iowa, and I think probably all states have them, that just say in general that businesses can't discriminate against people based on their race, religion, sexual orientation, and some other things when deciding with whom to do business. And she says, I'm not I'm not discriminating against gay people. I'll, I'll sell gay people any kind of uh, product they like, but I won't speak uh, in ways that I don't want to speak. And I think that if I build a website for someone that is speech and people are going to see that as me speaking in favor of this marital union that, in fact, I don't support. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting here, too. Um, I'll just throw in, uh, I know you're going to walk us through further this, this case, uh, but let me share an email from one of our listeners, Bob, um, on this very case. Um, he writes, if a private country club, church, or individuals in their home want to discriminate against someone they do not want to welcome, that is certainly their prerogative. However, writes Bob, when it comes to the marketplace, as he calls it in this email, I thought we had settled the issue of who gets to sit at the soda fountain or the front of the bus or book a room at a hotel a long time ago. I find it shocking, writes Bob, that any business open to the public would believe they should have the right to refuse to serve anyone who has the means to pay for their product or service. And he concludes, it's just downright un-American. Bob, thanks for that email. React to that, Todd, because th yeah. that, that well, really targets it, doesn't it? It, it does target it very nicely, uh, because in one sense, we have settled the issue that when it comes to with whom you're going to do business, if you're a dentist or you're or you uh, a, a storekeeper or wh whatever business you're in, it is well settled and it's settled uh by statutes across the country, uh, by legislation, that you can't discriminate against someone. Say, well, we don't serve blacks here, we don't serve gays here, we don't serve women here. You know, whatever the principle is, that's a very well-established legal principle in this country. And what Lori Smith is saying, and we'll see whether she wins, her claim is that's not what I'm doing. I'm perfectly happy to build a website for anyone who comes in and asks me to build a website for them. But what I'm not willing to do is be made to speak 
and say things that I don't want to have to say. Mm. And so let me give you an example that uh, occupied the Supreme Court justices very briefly. The Supreme Court justices at oral argument this week were saying, well, suppose someone is in the business of being a speechwriter and a client, a potential client comes to this professional speechwriter and says, I'd like you to write a speech for me taking such and such position. And the speechwriter says, wow, I really oppose those views. I don't want to write a speech for you taking that position. You're the one delivering the speech. It's not my speech, but I don't want to be implicated in it. And if I write that speech for you, I will be saying things I don't want to say. And Lori Smith is saying, well, that's basically like me. I don't want to have to write the speech. I don't want to have to build the website and say these things. And so it's possible. It's just who knows what the Supreme Court will do, but it's possible what the Supreme Court will say is that if you're in the business of selling an expressive product like like a speech, you come to me and I'll write a brochure for you or I'll write a speech for you versus selling someone a six pack of beer, which is not expressive. Maybe the Supreme Court will kind of try to find a line there and say, well, there are some messages that are wrapped up in the sale of a product or service and people can't be forced to deliver whatever those messages are. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very tricky issue with potentially Todd, yeah. huge consequences depending where they draw the line. Yeah, Todd, and how much of a factor is it? Because unlike the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there was a refusal of service to an actual client in that case from a few years ago. Here, uh, this um, person in Colorado is simply saying it's it's sort of hypothetical isn't it? It's, it's not a refusal of service, a concrete case. It is. That's right. It is hypothetical. And, and there's, there's the possibility the court will resolve the case on those grounds. And the language they would use is they would say the case is not yet ripe. And that has to do with the fact that she is not yet building wedding websites for anybody. She's saying this is what she wants to do in the future. And so there's a small chance, I think, that the Supreme Court will say, well, come back to us when you're actually in the business and you've actually declined service to someone. I don't think the court's likely to do that because they knew that these were the facts at the time they agreed to hear the case. So I think they're likely to find their way around that problem. Yeah. Emily Hughes, I know you took in some of the oral arguments on this case this week while during your travels. Uh, I wondered if you had some observations as, as we get a sort of a handle about what this is about. Well, I would agree with Todd that based on the arguments, I don't see the court deciding that they wish they hadn't taken the case um, because the nature of the arguments, they were asking all kinds of questions um, about, you know, Todd referenced the suppose a speechwriter question. They had just all these different kinds of hypotheticals that mm-hmm. they were throwing left and right um, that were much broader, much different than the question at hand. And to me, that indicated they're really, you know, they're really interested in carving out a, a decision and a principle here. And what Todd was just saying about the is the court going to see this as providing a service or are they going to see it more as um, Lori wants them to see it as, um, you know, writing a speech or commissioning a work of art or something like that? That's kind of part of what's at play in the case as well. Mm -hmm. So before we move on, Todd, any concluding remarks? Of course, we don't know. It is a 6-3 conservative court now. Um, I don't know if you're in the the, the betting game or the (laughs) hypothetical. They they say only idiots will predict outcomes, but I'm happy to play the role of idiot. I think she's. I think Laurie Smith will probably win, uh-huh. uh, but I think it will probably be a kind of a narrowly drawn 
win, uh, all those hypotheticals that Emily was just referring to. And that happens a lot at oral arguments in yeah. the Supreme Court because the court always has to worry not just about the case in front of it, but all the other cases that might be similar. So they've got to think very widely. And I, I suspect that they will move with a little bit of caution, but I will not be surprised at all if she finds a way to win this case. Going through some of the high-profile cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, but also later in the uh, Iowa's High Court, its Supreme Court. Uh, Todd Pettis is with us of the University of Iowa College of Law and his colleague Emily Hughes, uh, both uh, legal scholars, uh, lending us their expertise to walk us through uh, these cases. Uh, Let's go quickly to Algona. Paul is with us uh, from Algona. Paul, I think you had something to ask or say about the case we're just talking about. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just wondering, can't this uh, person in Colorado put up one of those convenience store stickers, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone, or do those not have any legal standing? Great question, Paul. Uh, Todd, what do you say? Well, there's laws that limit someone's ability to refuse service, and Colorado has a public accommodations law, as does Iowa, uh, for that matter, that says certain traits that you cannot rely upon. So just because, let's take race, for example, because that would provide probably a pretty easy example. Just because someone puts a sign up in their door that says we refuse the right to refuse service to anyone does not mean that they now have a legal right to serve only white people, for yeah. example. There's legislation in all states that place limits uh, on that. And so there are times when you can, you could say, you know, unless you're clothed or some other thing, uh, they can place rules. But there's laws in every state set out certain traits, certain characteristics, like race, like sex, like sexual orientation in most states, or many states at least, that you can't have that as a basis for denying someone service. Mm -hmm. Very important case. Uh, let's leave, set that aside. We'll wait for 2023 before we have the decision from the high court on it. We've taken a lot of time, but it's well-deserved for this case here. We have a number of other cases we want to march through here. I guess we'll have to perhaps pick up the pace a little bit, Todd. Bring us to the, what has been in the news, not as much recently, uh, but uh, there is a big affirmative action case. This could um, overturn um, a, a precedent that goes back quite a while, doesn't it? It does. So the short version is uh, back in 2003, the Supreme Court decided a case involving the University of Michigan Law School and the court in that case in a very narrow five to four ruling held that the Michigan Law School could take race into account at least up to a point when deciding whom to admit in their entering class. And so ever since then, uh, a lot of public universities, not here in Iowa now, but in, uh, in many other states, a lot of public universities, private ones too for that matter, have taken race into account in an effort to build a racially diverse class and classes that are diverse along other uh, axes as well. And that ruling has been under a lot of pressure for a long time from conservatives and what uh, uh, in litigation involving the University of North Carolina and Harvard University, uh, litigants are asking the Supreme Court to overrule that case and to hold that what uh, institutions, in fact, cannot take race into account. They mm -hmm. have to be totally race blind when making their admissions decisions. Mm -hmm. Do we have any any idea of what this particular court with its conservative majority will do here? Will they erase affirmative action as any factor that a um, such an institution can consider? 
Yeah, I, th I think it, there's a, a good likelihood that that's going to happen. Even back in that 2003 ruling, the Supreme Court said in an opinion written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor that, you know, we hope that within 25 years or so, mm -hmm. the world will be such that we won't have that schools won't have to take race explicitly into account in order to wind up with racially diverse classes. And just judging based on the tenor of the questions, it yeah. sure looks like there's going to be enough votes so, to overturn it, but we'll see. So, so, so the court could say something like, okay, um, we set sort of a, a parameter, a time parameter for us to reach this desirable goal. And, and now we're pretty much there, so we don't need this anymore. Is that, is that <laughs> yeah, but it's not going to be the clock driving it. I think what the court will say instead is that even when we gave it universities this permission, we were expressing the, we expressed a lot of tentativeness. We didn't want this to be a permanent feature of American society. We're, we're you know, so you've, you've barely persuaded us that this ought to be okay for a while. And I think there's just going to be a, I know that there is among some justices, at least a lot of impatience with it, thinking, you know, we gave universities a chance to do this. And for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go into right now on today's show, we're not sure we even trust universities to be making the right decisions about how much diversity is enough. Mm -hmm. And are there other ways to achieve racial diversity in a class without expressly considering race, maybe just take economic circumstances yeah. into account or something like that. Uh, so I think the impatience has been growing. And with six Republican appointees on the court now, uh, even if one of them, quote, defects, so to speak, they're still going to have a majority to overturn it. So I think that's probably what's going to happen. But mm -hmm. again, we'll see. Todd, walk us through quickly before our halfway break, uh, another case that was heard this week, Moore v. Harper. And, and we talked about this yesterday in our politics. Uh, of course, uh, uh, with our political commentators here, you can give us the, the legal view of this case that could dramatically increase the power of state legislatures um, on voting issues, uh, making redistricting, uh, making voting rules, as I understand it, correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, just a few years ago, the Supreme Court held that federal courts, let's distinguish between federal courts and state courts, the Supreme Court said that federal courts can't adjudicate or can't resolve controversies in partisan gerrymandering cases where it is alleged that a state has drawn its congressional voting districts to favor one party or another. The Supreme Court in that case said the federal courts just can't get into that at all. But they said in that case, but state courts can, and state courts can enforce state constitutional restrictions and so forth. And so North Carolina's Supreme Court found that a Republican-controlled legislature in North Carolina had drawn congressional voting districts in ways that unfairly favored, favored Republicans. So the North Carolina Supreme Court struck that down, citing provisions of the North Carolina Constitution. And what's at stake in this Moore case is the question, do state Supreme Courts really have any role to play at all in evaluating these congressional maps? And it's something called the independent state legislature theory. Just very briefly, there's a provision in the federal constitution that says that the times, places, and manners or manner of federal congressional elections shall be prescribed by state legislatures. And so uh, the Speaker of the North Carolina House is saying, well, it says legislatures. And so if the legislature in a state wants to draw maps that favor one political party, state Supreme Courts, even under state constitutional provisions, don't have the authority to do anything about it. It all ought to be up to legislatures. Mm -hmm. And that case was just argued yesterday. Yeah. And, and so it comes down to here from what you're saying and what I've read about this, Todd, is is what our framers meant by the word legislature. Do they mean legislature as 
very narrowly interpreted, or is it legislature embedded within all the other things that states have, uh, the the executive branch, uh, the judicial branch? Am I, am I correctly sort of interpreting that? Yes, yes, you are. And uh, I, I don't think that, uh, since I'm going out on limbs making predictions, I'll make one <laughs> here too. I don't think that the North Carolina legislature is likely to get a sweeping win here. There's a few justices drawn to this theory, but uh, there was a lot of skepticism about it because it would totally cut out or not totally cut out, I'm I'm just trying to be brief here in the time we have, it would give state courts and state constitutions very, very little role to play. And the counter argument to that is these state legislatures, they have powers pursuant to state constitutions and state constitutions can limit legislative powers and so forth. And the role of the courts is to kind of vindicate the will of the people Mm -hmm. as it is expressed in state constitutions. And so to say that legislatures can do whatever they want when it comes, for example, to partisan gerrymandering and whatever a state constitution says to the contrary doesn't matter, whatever a state Supreme Court says to the contrary doesn't matter, that just gives legislatures so much power. It's a very big pill, I think, for this Supreme Court to swallow. I don't know if either of you heard the oral arguments on that this week. We've got a minute or two before we go to break. If if uh, any of the justices seemed friendly to that, uh, to, to that uh, view you just described there, Todd? I think Justice Alito may be favorable to it. I think perhaps Justice Thomas is favorable to it. Uh, but there's skepticism, too, including among the Republican appointees, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, all these justices I th- are are clearly being very thoughtful about this, trying to think exactly yeah. what the implications are of giving state legislatures such a kind of a blank check to write for themselves, leaving no role for the courts to rein legislatures in pursuant to state constitutional restrictions. Yeah. Emily Hughes, before we go to break, you had a comment. Yeah, just thinking about checks and balances between the executive and the legislature and the judicial, I think that's you know, kind of what's at play here, too, and what Todd's talking about, and the importance of keeping all those checks and balances in place. Mm-hmm. So that the legislature wouldn't be, in this case, in terms of determining, maintaining election law, that we wouldn't have a sort of an all-powerful uh, legislature in each state that could just say, you know, um, yeah, okay, get the, get the point. Okay, very good. We'll come back. What are we going to do when we come back? We're going to look at some of the high-profile cases before the Iowa State Supreme Court. I think we have one more U.S. Supreme Court case. Oh, yeah, we want to talk about student loan forgiveness and whether uh, the president is within his authority uh, to forgive all those student loans. Perhaps you or a loved one are affected by that one. You'll want to stay tuned. Then we're going to move to Iowa State Supreme Court cases, um, primarily leaning on Emily's expertise to do that. And if you have any questions uh, on any of the topics, the cases that uh, we are looking at today, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100. All these cases affecting our society, perhaps affecting you personally. We're so glad you're on board. Join us with your questions and comments, 1-866-780-9100 or River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Back with our legal scholars from the University of Iowa, Emily Hughes and Todd Pettis in just a moment. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations. 
connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with this edition of River to River from IPR News. Glad you're on board. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with two um, legal scholars from the University of Iowa College of Law, Emily Hughes and Todd Pettis, walking us through some of the current uh, high-profile court cases with important implications for our society and perhaps for you as an individual. And we'd love to have you join us uh, with your input, your questions about any of the cases we're discussing this hour. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Sort of uh, the front end of the show, loaded with uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases. We have one more to finish up, and then we're going to dive into some Iowa Supreme Supreme Court cases. We want to talk about student loan forgiveness. Of course, uh, President Biden uh, launching this program to, uh, I think, up to uh, 10,000 or 20,000 in some cases of loan forgiveness uh, for students. Uh, Iowa, one of six states suing the administration. Todd, walk us through this. Yes, very briefly, because I know you have other cases to get to. Uh, After 9-11, Congress passed a statute that gave uh, presidential administrations the authority in, quote, national emergencies to modify or waive certain rules involving federal student loans. And so when COVID started, for example, President Trump put a moratorium on the collecting of federal student loan payments and also stopped the accrual of interest just because of the economic impact of the of the pandemic. And President Trump's reasoning was, let's just wait till the pandemic's over. People are in economically tough times. We can tell them they don't have to pay their federal student loan back, loans back for a little while. And then the Biden administration continued that. The Biden administration now has gone further and said that if you're economically qualified, we're going to outright cancel between 10 or up to 10 or up to $20,000 of your federal student loan debt. And as you say, the state of Iowa and five other states, Nebraska and some others, have sued the Biden administration saying that that's not within the president's authority, that that goes too far. Uh, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's a federal appellate court that's responsible for this part of the Midwest, including Iowa. In mid-November, they blocked the Biden administration's debt relief plan uh, from going into effect. The Biden administration raced to the Supreme Court and said, you've got to hear this case soon because it's very important. And uh, the Supreme Court of the United States agreed to put it on its February docket. So in February, the Supreme Court will be looking at the request of Iowa and these other states at whether the president has the authority to go so far as to cancel debt beyond just, you know, which is a step further, of course, than just merely saying that we're going to give you a little time out on your repayment obligations. Mm-hmm. What is the argument uh, for um, saying that the president does not have this authority as the chief executive of our country to to say these loans are forgiven to this extent to those who um, meet these um, income requirements? Yeah. Well, one of the things is uh, 
there's an emerging view on the Supreme Court that when it comes to major questions, in fact, it's called kind of a major questions doctrine. If the president or a presidential administration is going to claim authority under a statute to do something really, really big, Mm-hmm. then the statute had better be clear that the president has the authority to do it. So one recent example would be when uh, the Biden administration had issued a vaccine mandate for all large employers, and uh, the Supreme Court found that that was beyond the president's authority. And the Supreme Court said basically in plain English, that is such a huge deal. It involves millions of people. And to you know require these large employers to in turn require their employees to get vaccinated. That's such a big deal that Mm -hmm. we had better be able to look at a statute and see that authority clearly laid out. And the argument is being made here among others, uh, I think that if you're gonna outright cancel student loans, you know, there's something like $1.6 trillion are owed by 40 something million people under these federal loans. If you're gonna cancel hundreds of millions of dollars cumulatively worth of debt, the president had better have clear statutory authority. And what the president is relying on is this very brief reference to being able to do certain things in national emergencies. And the argument that's being made is, well, that's not clear enough. Yeah. And so we'll see. And your informed uh, tea leaves in the bottom of your cup, Todd, tell you this court? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, this court clearly is more suspicious than courts in other recent in recent years have been when it comes to pre- broad authority uh, through something like the Department of Education to do big things. But, you know, one of the problems with this kind of major questions doctrine or big things doctrine, if you will, is well, how, when is something big enough, yeah. major enough that we're going to place this special demand on the statute and say, boy, it better be clear. It's hard to draw limits around that. So I, I think it's a very hard one to call. Okay. Uh, let's pivot over to Iowa's high court, the Iowa Supreme Court. Uh, Emily, you've been looking at a number of cases you want to highlight for us. Where do you want to start? I have. Well, I want to start in West Des Moines in a case that's um, currently pending in front of the Iowa Supreme Court. So we don't know what they're going to decide, but we but we know um, the kinds of things they're thinking about from their argument. So I want to take you back to um, February of 2020 when the police in Des Moines received a, a 911 call to respond to a, a house. And it turned out um, that um, somebody was in dire straits there. Um, that person later died. And uh, the person that he was married to um, is Ms. Park. And the police, when they showed up at the house, you know, and somebody's looks like they're about to die, um, they pulled Ms. Park aside and said, you know, tell us what happened. What's going on? What, mm-hmm. What's happening here? And that was the beginning of five different conversations, you know, turning into interrogations that they have with Ms. Park because Ms. Park turns into the person that the police arrest for the murder of her husband. Mm. So um, so she is facing a, a murder in the first degree charge, a first degree kidnapping charge. And um, it's it it hasn't gone to trial yet because at the trial court level, um, the the you know, the, the attorney for Ms. Park argued that the way that the police asked the questions to Ms. Park, that those her answers to those questions should not come in so that her statement should be suppressed at the trial. And so the question so and at the trial court level, before the trial even begins, the court said, you know what, I agree um, based on Miranda warnings, which we can talk about, yeah. as well as promises of leniency like 
these were not voluntary statements. And so and so the the jury doesn't get to hear them. And she didn't have what we all know from our crime series, the Hollywood crime series, the Miranda warning, which is says, you know, if, if you, you don't have you don't have to incriminate yourself, you don't have to say anything. And that can be that should not be interpreted as as admission of guilt or anything. Right. So really interesting. So there are five different times the police talk to her and you kind of chunk them out into five different segments. The and let's just go back to Miranda warnings. If the police, if you're in custody, so meaning you're not free to go, and if the police are asking you questions when you are not free to go, then the police have to give you Miranda warnings. And everybody knows you have a right to remain silent. Anything mm-hmm. you say can mm-hmm. be will- against you. So the first question the court had to answer is, was she in custody? Because if she's not in custody, then she doesn't get to have Miranda warnings. So even if they didn't give them to her, that was fine. So so the the district court said everything needs to be suppressed because these kinds of rules weren't followed, right? The court of appeals said, we agree with you that the 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 four times you talked to her after you were in the house with her, that first 911 call, when you're just trying to figure out what happened. There's a person you know, dying, yeah. Yeah, somebody died. What happened? That's not in custody. There's no problem there. The Court of Appeals said that statement comes in, but the rest of them are going to come out. You know, stay out. The, the, the jury won't get to hear those. And so now before the Supreme Court of Iowa, the Supreme Court of Iowa is trying to decide should all of them come in? Or is it right just to keep that first one out? So we've talked about the Miranda warnings and, and you know, the right to be told you have a right to remain silent and to get a lawyer if you're in custody and if the police are asking you questions. Another aspect of this case is this idea of promises of leniency. And that means that uh, Ms. Park's attorney argued she was promised, like, but, you know, the, the police got her to talk by essentially promising her that if she if she told them things, that she would be treated more leniently, you mm. know, that, that it wouldn't be as harsh a sentence or, or maybe even nothing would happen at all. And, and the way that that kind of plays into whether these statements are going to come in is because we want statements to be voluntary, because we believe that if people voluntarily say something, that that statement is true, right? That they're reliable. And the idea being that if somebody is kind of coerced into saying something because they think they're going to get something in return, then maybe that statement is not as reliable. Mm -hmm. Any any indication here about uh, how the Iowa's high court will rule here? Well, there, so there was an interesting um, series of questions at oral argument, and one that I'll pull out is um, Justice Mansfield asked, when does a promise of leniency dissipate? You know, in terms of even if there was a promise of leniency early on, she talks to them, you know, a little bit after the police show up. She goes home. She comes back the next day. She goes home again. You know, this is over a period of a couple days. Yeah. Is, you know, is there, even if she's promised something, is there a point when that promise kind of no longer lingers? And so mm-hmm. questions like that are going to be an interesting part of it. And there's just one other interesting kind of fact that ties into everything, which is her husband died. And while she was being questioned by the police, she asked, you know, how is he doing? And they knew that she had died, but they said they didn't know. And so that also sort of plays in is, is was that kind of you know, lying about what they knew and didn't know and what kind of information might be helpful for her. 
did that also play into whether these statements were coerced? Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, Emily Hughes and Todd Pettis with us, some legal scholars from the University of Iowa. We're currently walking through some of the high-profile uh, state Supreme Court cases uh, currently. Uh, well, I guess the next one we want to talk about is one that has been decided by the Iowa Supreme Court back in in November. Tell us about that. That's right. So we're moving up to Sioux City for this case. And this involves um, a person who was pulled over for drunk driving. And what alerted the police was that the person had a red, you know, ran a red light and then they were moving really slowly. So sort of driving too slowly and, and running through the red light is what, you know, keyed the police that they should pull him over, Mr. Baraki. And when they pulled him over, um, they got, you know, they had reasonable grounds, they believed to believe that he was intoxicated. They gave him a series of the field sobriety tests, and he failed those. And so at that point, they wanted to administer um, you know, a chemical test, a blood, you know, breath test, mm-hmm. urine test to um, to confirm what his blood alcohol content was. So um, what becomes interesting and why this made it all, well, all the way up to the Iowa Supreme Court is that Mr. Baraki is from Eritrea, which is a, a country in northeast Africa. It's just above Ethiopia. It's just sort of southeast of the Sudan. And his first language, his primary language is Tigrinya. Never heard of it. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm not a, a Tigrinya speaker either, and I hope I'm pronouncing <laughs> the language right. Um, but that was the language that, you know, it says primary language. He knows some English. So when the police get to this part of the stop in Iowa, if you're driving in Iowa, right, you have an applied consent that you will consent to be tested for a chemical test if the police have reasonable grounds that you are drunk. Um The thing is that the police also have to tell you, according to our statute, that you have a right to refuse the test. So you have a right not to take the breath test. And um, they also have to tell you about what the consequences would be if you're over the legal limit. So this is where things get tricky when Mr. Baraki speaks to Grinia, because the police are trying to explain this to him. And it becomes pretty clear to the police that he understands part of it, but not all of it. And so the police officer does three different things to try to help Mr. Baraki understand what his rights are if he refuses. Because if he refuses, his driver's license will be revoked for a certain period of time. And the fact that he refused his test will be used against him if he were to go to trial. So the police are trying to explain this. He speaks to Grinia. He's not understanding. So the first thing the police do is they take him back to the station and try to get a Tigrinya interpreter. So they call Language Line. There's actually a, a service a, a service that yeah. the police use to try to get an interpreter, and there is nobody available at that time who speaks Tigrinya. So then the next thing the police do is they try to use Google, Google interpreter. And, you know, can we try to make this work? And that, that doesn't work very well. So the third thing the police do is they hand Mr. Baraki a cell phone and say, call anybody you want, anybody you want to try to help you understand here what's happening. So he could have called a lawyer. He could have called somebody. And he spends about two minutes trying to make phone calls to somebody. And nobody answers or he can't connect with anybody. And then he gives the phone back. So it's at this point that the police are like, you know, you only have the police only have two hours to administer this test. And they like we've tried. And so they 
they go ahead and administer the test, and, and it comes out that he's over the legal limit. So the issue before the court is should that result be suppressed? So should, should the state not be able to use the fact that he tested over the legal limit because, in fact, he didn't really understand what yeah. he was consenting to? And in the court's opinion, they say, you know, there comes a point when the police tried everything that they kind of could, and there's a reasonableness test here that, um, you know, they, they really tried to use reasonable methods. They really tried to reasonably convey the consent warnings, and there really wasn't anything else they could have done. So, yes, that could be used against them. And, and the court observed in oral argument, and, and, well, and in their opinion, right, that it, wouldn't it be a double standard, they say, if, if people who didn't speak the language and the, and, the, um, and the police can't find an interpreter if those tests aren't able to be used against them, whereas somebody who speaks English, the tests are used against them. So mm. that's part of what the court was thinking as well. Fascinating. Emily Hughes with us, Todd Pettis. Uh, we have about five minutes left. I think, Emily, you had one more state Supreme Court case uh, argued back in October. I don't know if there's been a ruling that's been handed down on that one as well. We're still waiting on that one as well. And this one's interesting because it has uh, a criminal dimension to it and also a, a civil dimension. And and I'll start with the criminal dimension, which is um, a person was arrested and was in jail um, on those charges in, I believe, Warren County, and escaped. Um, kind of interesting, and I understand things have changed in the jail in terms of how he was able to escape. But he escaped and was missing um, for over eight, over a week. I think it was about eight to ten days. Um, from what I've read in the news reports, went to multiple states, um, stole different cars, and kind of was you know all over the place but made his way back to Iowa and was in was driving on I-80 when they spot him. And so the police are trying to figure out how to pull him over at this point. So they don't want to pull him over on 80 because it's too busy and they're worried, yeah. you know, you don't want to sort of get anybody hurt, right? So they follow him for a period of time and turns off of I-80 and they wait until he's driving on a more remote place of Meredith Road for listeners out there around the Urbandale area. You might know where where he was pulled over. But essentially, at that point, one police officer moves in front of him, one moves behind him, turn on their lights, and they try to pull him over. Rather than pulling over, he speeds up. And he speeds up, and he blows through a red light, and very sadly and tragically, he crosses into opposing traffic, and now he starts weaving in and out of oh opposing goodness, traffic. Yeah. And, at, at, and that whole thing is less than... I think it's about 77 seconds. Like it's you know very short period of time. The police start pursuing him, but then when they see he's crossing over into oncoming traffic, they pull back and stop pursuing him. But sadly, he does run head on into somebody else, um, mm-hmm. the Martinez family, in the other lane. And so he is apprehended, um, eventually pleads guilty to the criminal charges that he was in jail on and the first time and the escape charge and all that. This particular case has to do with the civil dimension of it, which is what is the government's duty here in terms of, um, you know, kind of protecting citizens in a car chase? And the idea being, um, is there a duty of the police officers never to have engaged in that car chase in the first place? Um, did they pull back soon enough? 
and and what's going to happen in that regard. Okay, still waiting for the ruling on that. Um, I have one question related to our latest uh, Supreme Court news. Um, Todd, perhaps I can pitch this in your direction in the final minute of our, our program. Uh, we know now, as of this week, after the Georgia runoff, that uh, the Democrats will control the Senate by a 51 to 49 margin in the new Congress in 2023. Um, what significance does that have in terms of um, the confirmation of lower court judges, or perhaps there might be, we don't know, a vacancy in the U.S. high court. I don't think it's going to have a major impact, of course. And it's, you know, it's, it's one more vote, and so it gives at least one senator room to defect from the party if for local political reasons they need to do so. Uh, you know, you don't have to have everybody on board, but I don't think it's likely to have a, a main, a, a big impact, though, as you, as you're acknowledging with your question, all judicial appointments do have to go through that Senate. And so every vote that one political party has, in addition, you know, beyond just the bare helps them, but I don't think it's going to have a big Mm. impact. I I thought in my reading, uh, perhaps it it would perhaps speed up uh, the um, confirmation of lower court judges. You don't see that either? Well, it might. I, uh, I just think it's such a small change that when we look back on this era about how the, the pace of Biden appointments, the pace of approval, the pace of yeah. Senate confirmations and so forth, I don't think the statistics in the end are going to suggest that this made a big difference, but maybe it will on the margins. Emily Hughes, you had a last word here. I was just going to say maybe the combination of the numbers plus the fact that we're in the second part of the term, right, that maybe sure. maybe that combination might light a fire in some way. Okay. Well, That's a good you- point. Thank you very much. You've explained these cases so well. Emily Hughes, uh, Edward F. Howry, Professor of Law, Todd Pettis, the H. Blair and Joan V. White Chair in Civil Litigation, Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. Uh, You've done us a tremendous service walking us through these cases, helping us understand how they may shape our society and uh, may touch us as individuals. Emily and Todd, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks so much for having us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Tomorrow on this program, it's a News Buzz edition. Uh, We'll talk with uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times pilot. He'll give us his view on why Democrats have stripped Iowa of its first-in-the-nation caucus and so much more on our News Buzz edition tomorrow. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Tomorrow.